And that all seems like the stuff you want discussed in schools. You know, schools are a place where we've got to trust teachers to walk students through that. Do I trust every teacher 100% with the complexity of every issue? No, because they are human beings. But that's why our kids get lots of teachers and we teach at home too. And there hopefully are lots of adults in our kids' lives who can help them ask questions and make their way through this stuff. This is Sarah and Beth. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics, the home of grace-filled political conversations. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of Pantsuit Politics. We are so excited that you're here. We're going to begin today talking about the Department of Justice and its leaks investigation and the Inspector General's review of that. If you don't know what I'm talking about, you will shortly. And as Representative Sean Maloney said, it is unacceptable AF. I think that's a good headline for that story. Next, we are going to talk about critical race theory at the request of many, many listeners. We get several people a week reaching out about critical race theory. So we're going to discuss that in the main segment. And outside of politics, we talked about the benefits of aging last time. Today, we're going to talk about the risk of aging and some of the arrogance that can accompany it and how we're guarding against that in ourselves or trying to at least. Before we get started, we just want to remind you that we are so excited for our July infrastructure series. I am most excited, I think, Sarah, to share this series because I think that once you start really critically examining infrastructure and everything that is required to bring to us the things we take for granted every day, you can't unsee it. Yeah, it does feel like it's the matrix, right? Like once you start to recognize infrastructure in your everyday life and think about how it's all interconnected, both to each other and to what we do every day, you can't, you're right, you can't unsee it. And it starts to infiltrate other like ways you think about politics, ways you think about policy, ways you think about community. So I'm just excited to have that conversation with all of you. Also, we might sound a little bit different today. We're together. We're in the same space. I came to Best House with my children so that we could do a little work in person and enjoy the summer. Our kids could enjoy the summer together for a few days. So if this episode sounds a little bit different, that's why. So we are very cozy as we are bringing you this episode, and it's nice to be able to see each other's faces. So let's begin with the leak investigation. Here's what we know today. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. 
And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. We have learned that the Department of Justice in 2018 subpoenaed records from Apple related to several members of the House Intelligence Committee, so actual members of Congress, some of their family members. We know that one person was a minor because there sometimes in leak investigations is suspicion that people will use their children's accounts to try to keep their privacy protected. We also have learned and we don't know if these two things are related or not, that the Department of Justice sent a subpoena to Apple related to Don McGahn, the former White House counsel, and his wife, February 2018. And that's really as far as it goes, but it is an extremely unusual occurrence and something that Speaker Pelosi has said goes well beyond Richard Nixon in terms of executive branch overreach and What we now need to know is what Congress will do about this. There is discussion of, you know, asking Jeff Sessions, who was the attorney general at the time, Bill Barr, who kind of put the accelerator down to keep this investigation going, Rod Rosenstein. Everyone says, from a high profile place, everyone says, I didn't know about this. And that seems really (laughs) unlikely to me. And if that's true, I think we have even bigger problems requiring congressional oversight and hearings. Well, and this story started even before members of Congress. We already knew that the Justice Department was engaged in back and forths, particularly with regards to gag orders with the New York Times and the Washington Post, that they were trying to seize reporters' records as well. And that's, listen, that that's bad enough. The Department of Justice pursuing leak investigations with the press, look, it got the Obama administration in trouble. This has happened in other administrations. It led to new processes at the Department of Justice where you specifically, with the press, have to go and get the attorney general's approval. So it's impossible to imagine that we set up processes to protect this process when they're going after the reporters, which they were doing, and then they expanded it to start going after members of Congress, which we're now learning about as well, and that the attorney general or acting attorney general didn't know. That's just, that seems impossible to believe. And I think it's, you know, it needs to be a bigger conversation about these leak investigations overall when they concern the press, which has been an ongoing source of concern for people, not just in the press, but, you know, in other areas. And I think now that we're seeing it expand under the Trump administration, or we're seeing that it did expand under the Trump administration to members of Congress, then we have an issue. And I mean, I think these leak investigations, they're problematic. You know, they are often not pursued. It feels a lot like the investigation itself is the intimidation technique because they're so hard to prove. Because once Right. Once somebody starts talking about it, once it's leaked, then everybody's talking about it. And then how do you figure out the source of the leak? And it's, you know, we they have pursued a couple successfully, but it's very rare. And I think this is, you know, the fact that they went so far over the line pursuing the records of members of Congress and didn't clearly didn't find anything because you be- best believe if they had, it would have been all over Fox News, shows that these investigations are really a source of intimidation and not a source of evidence that ever leads to anything. I am probably in a minority position here. I think leaks are pretty important to our democracy. I, you know, I think that like preventing them or no, having them. I think having them. <laughs> I think having leaks is pretty important to our democracy. And I think preventing leaks is less a matter of bringing down the, the entire power of the Department of Justice on people and more establishing a good, transparent culture where folks feel that the information that should reach the United States populace reaches the United States populace mm-hmm. through legitimate channels. You know, I think that I think that this is a workplace culture issue to solve, Mm. not bring in the lawyers. And it concerns me that in this context and many others, our standards for judicial oversight of prosecutorial investigation 
is so amorphous. You know, when you say, well, you can get these records in order just to preserve evidence or in order to assist with an ongoing investigation, that's too broad. And we don't know what happened here. We don't know what standards a judge was assessing. It might be that all of this looks entirely proper upon detailed review. That seems unlikely to me, though. And I think it's important for Congress to have a taste of what its laws allow sometimes. I think it's important for Congress to take a look at this issue and consider whether we have two empowered prosecutors who get every message from us saying, zealously pursue these cases. You know, I think we need to pull the the tools back a little bit here. Well, and I thought it was so interesting that all this starts to really accelerate this scandal, um, reaches new heights on the 50th anniversary of the Pentagon Papers. This moment in our history where there was a leak that exposed the American public to the fact that what they were being told about the Vietnam War was not true. And it's an incredibly important moment, not just in the press, but the history of our entire country. I don't think anybody looks back at that time and thinks, well, that was the wrong call, either to leak it or to print it order uphold the printing of it at the Supreme Court. And so it's just, it, to me, that was like such an interesting historical moment to have in the midst of all this, because it just, it feels like, and again, this was true. I think there were concerns about this and this, this overall point that we get so obsessed with the leaks that we can't see the purpose they serve was already, it, it was true in the Obama administration too. And the idea that leaks are, public enemy number one. No, they're political public enemy number one. Like the politics of this is almost always leading the day. And I think it's it's not just because it's political players involved, but but again, these because these investigations are fraught. They're hard to prove. They're hard to take to a hand, grand jury. They're certainly hard to get a conviction of. And so if that's all true, then what are we spending all these time and resources on? And it just feels like it's political intimidation. And let me be clear, it's not that I think every leak is a good leak. There are times when it's bad, right? It has consequences. It endangers people. It's really bad. And I think that the greater risk overall to our democracy is cracking down so hard on them that we end up with intimidation of people and press interference and an abuse of the judicial process. The other thing that's happening in the background, I think the Pentagon Papers is such a good observation. It's also happening as President Biden is in Europe making the case that democracy is really important here in an era where autocracy is on the rise. And while he's out selling that democratic ideal and trying to shore up alliances around it, we have at home something that looks pretty undemocratic. You know, when you have your Justice Department investigating legislators without them knowing, that's tough. That's yeah. tough news to have in, in your headlines when you're out on the world stage. Well, and not only pursuing the members of Congress records, but doing it like so far after the concerning like information. I think that's the other really big red flag. I mean, Seizing the phone records of members of Congress is not a red flag. It is a a full five alarm fire. Like that to me is like, just want to emphasize again, that is not normal. That is very concerning. But the fact that they were doing this over leak investigations that were months or even over a year old, when leak investigations, like it needs to be soon because the information gets out there and then it's impossible to untangle that knot. And so, like, the fact that the prosecutors, I think, were at a certain point were like, this isn't going anywhere. And then Bill Barr comes in and goes, oh, no, yes, it is. Double down. Again, that's problematic. And that's the nicest possible way I can put it. And probably part of the reason that I'm so exercised about this is that it, to me, represents another piece of the puzzle in which I think privacy is being taken far too cavalierly across all of society right now. And it's another example of how much information a tech company possesses about all of us. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's fair to Apple and I don't think it's fair to any of us that this much information can be held and that the government can come get this much information without us even knowing that it's happening. And if it can happen to a member of Congress, you know it's happening to ordinary citizens. Definitely. 
Before we move on to talk about critical race theory, we have a moment of hope to share. Sarah, you are super excited about a new vaccine. Yes, Novavax has announced that they have a new vaccine. It's 90% efficacy. It's called a subunit vaccine. It's not an mRNA. And to me, that's the really encouraging part. This is a vaccine that uses a type of the protein from the virus, piece of the protein from the virus. And to me, the the fact that it's getting to 90% efficacy without being an mRNA vaccine is really, really encouraging. It's another one on the market. Now, we don't, do we need it necessarily in the United States? No. But around the globe, do we need another vaccine? Absolutely. And so the more tools we have in the tool belt, especially as the Delta variant becomes more prominent, it is more dangerous and it is more contagious, but it is not weakening the vaccine's response, which is awesome. So, you know, I think, again, the more the better. Welcome to welcome to the party, Novavax. Next up, we're going to talk about critical race theory, which is something that y'all email us about every day. Mm-hmm. Well, and let's just say, be clear, it's not y'all driving the the conversation about critical race theory. It is the Republican Party who has decided that this is the racial, cultural, controversial strategy that's going to take them into the 2022 midterm. I mean, I'm I'm trying not to be cynical, but don't you think that's pretty fair? 100%. And I think that... Most people who kickstarted this theory among conservatives will admit that. Yeah. Uh, One of the main proponents of the state laws that you see being debated and passed in some states just went on Twitter and said, this is a branding exercise. We're going to brand everything related to being woke, being sensitive to race, policing speech. We're going to brand all of that as critical race theory. The goal is for people to hear critical race theory and think that's bad. And that's what liberals are doing. And I don't want any part of it. Now, just to kind of go back and talk about what we're even discussing, because I think that's missing a lot. Critical race theory itself isn't new. It's been around since the 1970s and was itself a reaction to liberal race theory. Yes, it was a legal theory. There was critical legal theories, and this was a subset. And, you know, the overall idea is that for decades, we treated the law as this objective, neutral thing. And, you know, even when I was in law school, there were still sort of strands of that, right? That the the law was objective and it was just how it was applied and interpreted. And, you know, critical legal theory and then critical race theory came along and said, no, that's not true. Like, it's not neutral. It represents the the priorities and the objectives of the people who write it. And it's functioning within a system where there are groups in power and groups outside of power. And so when we look at the law, when we apply a set of interpretations or theories to it, we need to be critical. To me, that's the part that truly, the part that scares people, the part that gets everybody's emotions flared up isn't the race part, it's the critical part. It's the, we're going to look at our legal system, we're going to look at our history, and we're going to be critical about the stories we've told ourselves and see which really holds up to examination. And so when you take that critical race theory, which has a bunch, it contains a bunch of different ideas. Mm -hmm. It contains the idea that whiteness is basically an asset in our society. It contains the idea of intersectionality. It draws on a lot of scholarship. And it is a theory, right? Every theory is an attempt to describe something. And no theory can describe absolutely everything. And that's not the point of a theory. This came up as an academic concept for discussion and debate within schools, universities, law schools in particular. And now we have this attempt by certain conservatives, and I want to make sure to say certain conservatives, because there are other conservatives who really do not like the laws being proposed to ban critical race theory from schools. There are people like David French, some writers at National Review, who are saying, friends, we have been against censoring speech in academic settings for a very long time. What are you all doing? But there are certain conservatives who are trying to say critical race theory is essentially racism against white people. It is demoralizing to students. It tells white students that they have done something wrong, even as, you know, kindergartners. And it tells black students that the whole world is stacked against them and they cannot realize their full potential. 
and it's purposely divisive. The point is yes. to be divisive because, and here's the fun part. They like to say it's based on Marxism because Marxism is, we want to say Marxist. We want to say communist. We want to say, we want to fire all those keywords that push people's buttons up. And they want to say, well, like this is, this is a Marxist philosophy, right? Is that you divide people against themselves. And those divisions are a source of power for whatever you want to perpetuate. And so I think that that's a strand or that's a narrative you hear a lot in people who are criticizing critical race theories. Like they just want, this is purposely divisive. You know, they call us racist, but this is what they really want to divide people along racial lines. And that's what critical race theory does. And so they are also wrapping up in critical race theory, things like Robin DiAngelo's white fragility, mm-hmm. and Ibram X. Kendi's How to Be Anti-Racist. Even though technically Ibram X. Kendi and Robin DiAngelo are not critical race theorists, we're just using this term now as an umbrella for everything that brings up race and that makes race a focal point in society. I think about that interview with Tressie McMillan Cotton on Ezra Klein's show where she said, it's just amazing. We like spoke these things into the universe and now they're coming true. We said sexuality should be a spectrum. And here and the kids were like, yeah, OK. And I think this will get into our conversation outside politics, too. And so I, to me, some of this is sort of the the natural cultural reaction. Things start in academics. They start in academia. We push these theories. We say this is messed up. This theory is more applicable. And we write about it and it stays in the ac- the academic setting. And then inevitably it drifts out into the culture. And I think that's what you see. That's what you see with the 1619 Project. That's what you see. You saw last summer with a lot of the conversations and writing surrounding the protest after George Floyd's murder. You see a, this critical moment where what used to be academic and what used to be theoretical sort of becomes more practical. It's sort of spreads, not to use a viral analogy in the middle of a pandemic, but it spreads, right? And I think that's what has happened with a lot of the way we talk about race is, you know, the people who are reacting and are using critical race theory to name something aren't necessarily wrong, right? They are right in that things have changed. And the way that we talk about race has changed. And we reached a critical mass in which when I was in college, talking about systemic racism was like something like progressives did. And now in 2021, talking about systemic racism is something a lot of people do. That is a dramatic change over the, you know, the past decades when our, when our parents were growing up, where racism became individualized, right? Racism was prejudice. This really dramatic shift, which accelerated a lot last summer that said, no, it's not about individual hearts and minds. It's about a system. It's about laws. It's about how people are treated in real estate. What happened, you know, we're going to talk about this on our infrastructure series. What happened with the national highway system? Like, this isn't about slavery, and then we're just dealing with individual racist jerks. Like, it goes much deeper than that. And that conversation really did accelerate inside, I think, legislators and inside our culture, you know, both policy and societal. And I think that that they're reacting to that, right? They're reacting and saying, hold up, slow up. I don't like the way this conversation's going. I don't like the story it's starting to unravel that I tell myself about this country that we all told ourselves about this country. And, and not just like racism's individualized, but also that like the goal is to be colorblind. You know, the, lots of quoting Lots and lots of quoting of Martin Luther King coming from critical race theorists' enemies, right? Like that they were supposed to be judged by the content of our character and that critical race theory doesn't allow that it makes everything about skin color. And so I think that there's all these different stories we've told ourselves about race over time and and they're they're reacting to the accelerated pace at which those stories are beginning to be rewritten. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. 
They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to d-i-p-s-e-a stories.com slash pantsuit. dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and Jean has you covered. We've talked about Olive and Jean's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are gonna last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and Jean also has press-ons if you want. What I love though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors. And I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. And they say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E.com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash pantsy. It's hard to talk about critical race theory without bringing in the 1619 project, uh, the work of the New York Times and Nicole Hannah-Jones in particular, for which she has won numerous awards and lots of criticism. The 1619 Project, just to make sure we're all on the same page, as its central kind of tenet, says we should really study the history of America beginning with the first ship of enslaved people coming here. And there have been lots of critiques of the work around the 1619 Project, the scholarship, particularly the assertion that the American Revolution was fought in defense of slavery. And that is where you have one of the fact checkers on the project, someone who really believes in its importance, saying, hey, this was certainly on some people's minds. It was certainly important to the Southern colonies, and it was not the driving force. I think I'm saying that in a fair way. But this is the thing about academic work. The 1619 Project garnered a lot of attention and acclaim because it was saying something new. And everything new that is said about history is going to attract a lot of critique and debate, and it should. If I tried to put together the history of what Beth Silvers did yesterday, even with unprecedented amounts of technology and surveillance around me, I couldn't do it accurately, right? We're always going to be debating what we know about history. And so 
when we talk about the school piece of this, the idea that people are running for school board to prevent critical race theory from being taught in the school system and state legislatures don't want kids to learn anything that's psychologically distressing or that could cause anguish. Those are some words from the Oklahoma bill. I think we are really losing the plot on what school exists to do. It's important to learn about history and and important to learn what scholars agree and disagree on in terms of our history. It's education, not indoctrination. Well, I think the problem is the 1619 Project wasn't purely an academic exercise. It might have begun as an academic exercise, but it was not purely in an academic setting. It was published and disseminated by the paper of record by the New York Times, which people, particularly on the right, already feel like push a very distinctive cultural perspective. And so I think that that, it was this confluence of this has existed in academics. This particular perspective was published and disseminated by this massive media presence in August 2019. So you're talking, you know, less than a year later than we have the murder of George Floyd and the racial protest, and so that this conversation that had maybe begun, that people already resented among sort of the elites in the New York Times, okay, well, then there's there's this accelerant that then now we have protests everywhere in every, you know, small town from Alabama to Alaska. And I think that accelerant, I feel like it's the elites are pushing this on us, then it's everywhere. And then The 1619 Project has sort of an educational component, right? And so then now it's now it's going into schools. And that is this touch point. They feel like, oh, well, it's now you're pushing it onto the younger generation, this particular perspective. And instead of having a debate, because I can't debate the 1619 Project without being called a racist, at least that's the perception. Now, then I really feel threatened. And I can't say I feel threatened because then you call me a racist. And I just think that we're seeing that sincere cultural reaction on some points and then people who are more than happy to exploit that sincere cultural reaction for their electoral and political purposes. And then now and and media purposes, because the 1619 Project pushes as much traffic to Ben Shapiro and Dan Bongino and Blaze TV as it does to the New York Times. And if they are not honest about that, then they are lying because that that is a traffic driver for them. They love the 1619 Project probably more than the New York Times does because it fires up people. It gets it it fuels that conflict and that fear that drives their audience. And so you have people, you know, I think we have a sincere moment where people are trying to figure out what are we keeping from the story we've been telling ourselves about America and what are we discarding? And then you just have this intense ecosystem of media and academia and public education and, you know, racial protest and deaths at the hands of police. And then you just have all this layered on top of it. And it makes it makes for quite a mess. I've been trying to think about what I learned in school, because I really think the measure of a country is how honest it can be about its own history. And I was thinking about how in my really rural county, where we had one high school, uh, and my high school class was quite small, we read every word of the Communist Manifesto, and it was wholly uncontroversial. I never heard anyone saying... But I never heard a parent saying, how could you let them read this communist Mm -hmm. propaganda? I remember writing an essay on the idea that religion is the opium of the people, right? And, And no one was fussing about that because it was considered part of our education. And taking a critical view of what's happened across the world, why we have been nervous about communism in this country, what good it did, why people were attracted to it. I am struggling with our inability to bring that perspective to our own history. And look, I don't embrace every aspect of the most intense application of critical race theory. I have learned a lot from it. I am still learning a lot from it. I think there is a lot that it has to say that in purely descriptive terms about the world that seems right to me and that seems really important. 
And like anything, there are people who take that farther than I'm comfortable with. And there are people who are rejecting it in terms that I think are completely intellectually dishonest. And that all seems like the stuff you want discussed in schools. You know, schools are a place where we've got to trust teachers to walk students through that. Now, do I trust every teacher 100% with the complexity of every issue? No, because they are human beings. But that's why our kids get lots of teachers and we teach at home too. And there hopefully are lots of adults in our kids' lives who can help them ask questions and make their way through this stuff. But I think these laws will go down in the courts as unreasonable restrictions on speech, completely vague. And I think that that's not the point. I don't think anyone is trying to get these laws passed because of their actual impact on the educational system. I think it's your point, Sarah, that people are scared and there are other people who are willing to exploit that fear because we let it mean a lot anytime you question any aspect of the most heroic story of America. Mm -hmm. We really personalize that. Oh, America isn't perfect. You must not be either. Oh, some things have been unearned by groups at the expense of others. You must not deserve anything you have and somebody ought to come take it away from you. I think we're just internalizing all this to a degree that speaks to a lot of insecurity and loneliness. And those are the issues that I'd like to spend time working on. So I'm reading Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, The Home We Build Together. It's so good. And he has this really great section where he talks about the difference between history and memory. History is someone else's story. It's about events that happened somewhere else, sometime else. Memory is my story. History answers the question, what happened? Memory answers the question, who am I? And I think that's what's happening. We're not worried about history, right? We're worried about memory What's the story we're telling ourselves about who we are as Americans? You know, the opponents of critical race theory believe that the story critical race theory is perpetuating, even though I don't think it's perpetuating a story. I think it's asking questions. But the story that they're hearing perpetuated is America is bad. And that means I am bad. And they don't like that. And that makes them really afraid. And I think the best direction to take any conversations about critical race theory, because the other story Americans tell themselves is that we aren't afraid and that we certainly aren't afraid of information and speech, that we greatly value free speech. And I think what I hear sort of the strongest answer to these concerns about critical race theory is exactly what you just articulated, which was in America, we teach it all. We don't censor. That's what other countries do. But we put it all on the table and then you get to decide. You get to decide. And I think, look, there's not going to be one answer to the question, who am I as an American? There's not going to be one answer to the question of what does the story of America mean to me? And I think that we have to allow some grace and some space to ask that question. And maybe that's our story. Maybe the The story of America is that we ask the questions, right? That's the story. That's the story that's most important for us is that we push and we ask the questions and we push ourselves and we push each other and we challenge each other. And I think that that's the most powerful narrative. And that's what's reflected in all of our history, but also in the 1619 Project and in critical race theory and even the response to critical race theory is that that we push ourselves and we ask ourselves the hard questions. And I want to keep doing that in schools and in media and in conversations with each other and in our communities, especially around issues of race. And I think you're right, Sarah, that a lot of people feel this sense of I can't question it or I'm going to be called a racist. I can't mm-hmm. I can't breathe or I'm going to be canceled. Right. There is that sense from the people who are arguing against critical race theory in school in particular, that we are setting up a, a no win scenario for everyone. I don't think we get out of that by censoring information. I don't think we get out of that by shutting down conversations mm-hmm. I don't think we prepare our children for a world that I agree is increasingly difficult to navigate. It does feel like there are landmines everywhere. Even if you are a person who 
mostly believes in sort of whatever Twitter believes in that day or whatever most people in the space that you're in believe. It does feel like we are more and more pushing against each other on various ideas. And there are places where you can reasonably say, it seems like nothing is ever good enough. And that's hard. And it does wear on everybody. And I think that this is such an important time in human history that we're doing that and that we're working through this and we're figuring out what it looks like to live in a multicultural democracy. We're figuring out what it looks like to live in a society that is connected in ways people have never been connected before. And I don't think we prepare our kids to get through that by narrowing what we talk with them about early in life. I really don't. I want to give some grace to people who are feeling scared and who are feeling this pressure because I don't think that everybody who supports these bills is racist. I don't. I do think that there is an element of race baked into almost everything that we do and that we're not always aware of it and that we're trying to bring greater awareness of it. I think both of those things are true. Not everyone fighting this is racist in their motivation for fighting against this bill. And race is part of just about everything, and we need to recognize that. And by the way, I think race is part of just about everything, and that's true outside of the United States as well. Mm -hmm. I don't think that the problem of white supremacy is uniquely American. I don't think the institution of slavery is uniquely American. I think people need to hear that because I do feel like there's a segment of the population that thinks we're just beating on America all the time in ways that lack a global perspective. And I don't think they're wrong. And also... I want to hold America to a higher standard, and I want to work through these issues, and I want to have honest conversations about them, and tightening anywhere, which is what this movement against critical race theory feels like to me, a tightening. We want to hold on to our story as tightly as we can. We want to hold on to the control over what our kids hear. We want to hold on to the way that we identify in terms of ourselves and our own worth and goodness and uh, integrity. And I just don't think tightening accomplishes what people of good faith are trying to accomplish here. Well, and, you know, I have some sympathy for the idea that it's never good enough. But also, I feel that coming from the right, too. It doesn't matter what you propose. You're still a Marxist. It doesn't matter what you want to do. You're still a radical It doesn't matter what you say about race or sexism or anything. You're still a woke activist. And so, you know, there's a part of me that's like, well, you do it too. So, (laughs) I mean, maybe there needs to be some space for all of us to recognize that we lean on that particular strategy a little too hard for sure on Twitter. But like, I just, you know... I think that that's part of what happens in conversations where we're bumping up against something really hard. We have to we have to fall back on old stereotypes. We have to fall back on linguistic crutches, right? Because there aren't exactly words to name what we're trying to do. There aren't we're 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 moving into move space in new spaces. We're trying to figure out new things and language is limiting. And so, you know, when there it when we're doing something hard that makes everybody afraid, We're going to lean on, I know you are, but what am I, right? So I think it's just, that's what we're looking at right now, recognizing that one side of this argument does not hold, you know, the moral monopoly. And also what we're talking about is not just ethics and morals, right? There's a lot going on here. It's cultural, it's policy, it's education, it's politics, it's power, It's race, it's history, it's It's memory, it's religion, Mm -hmm. it's story, it's all those things. And so, you know, to recognize that even when the argument seems ignorant, which sometimes it does, I think is important. Yeah, I think that if tightening is a strategy that you use to maintain control, you're probably not doing it in only one sphere. Mm -hmm. And it is not surprising to me, sadly, that... Some of the most vigorous opposition uh, to critical race theory being taught in schools comes from the faith that I grew up in, because the faith that I grew up in has a desire for rules. There's for a lot of rules and a lot of order and a sense that we never really measure up. And I can see when you believe that you never really measure up and you're fundamentally flawed Uh, That adding ways in which you might be flawed that you're not in control of Mm -hmm. really disrupts 
your worldview and really adds a level of pressure that feels unsustainable. And that makes me sad. I feel a lot of grief about the conversations that we're having about this topic. Grief that there are divisions within white people and people of color about how to take these theories, about what it means for all of us as we look at ourselves. Because make no mistake, there are uh, people of color who are vigorous critics of critical race theory as well, right? Mm -hmm. Not everyone is in lockstep about any of this. And I think that's good and important, but it's also hard. And it makes me sad to see the strain that people are living with superimposed on this debate. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, we are talking about this very much through the through a community lens, right? Through a national lens, through a cultural lens. But I think the other big strand that runs through this conversation is this sort of individual versus systems, right? That the opponents of critical race theory feel like it perpetuates the idea that individuals don't have any control over their lives. And look, you hear this in a lot of debates between liberals and conservatives, that there are systems in play if you're a liberal that you want recognized, that you want regulated, that you want torn down, that you want defunded, dare I say. And the conservative answer is responsibility, right? It's this debate between what matters, what affects our lives, the power of systems or the responsibility that come with individual choices. I'm not breaking any fresh ground here. It's both. (laughs) It's like the, you know, nature versus nurture. We don't have to pick one, both. That's what we're learning is that it is a complex interplay of both systems. And I think, again, I think that's why the part that gets people riled up is the critical part, because it's a hard, complicated analysis to say that we are both influenced by our individual choices and responsibilities and the systems through which we make those individual choices. And, you know, sort of critically thinking about those things instead of saying, oh, just common sense, easy peasy, that one is right and one is wrong, instead of saying there's power at work here. And the systemic racism that influences Black and Brown people is also used to maintain power in ways of class and status, right? Like that that is a flow of power that influences lots of people, not just Black and Brown people. We both listened to an episode of Dan Crenshaw's podcast where they talked about critical race theory. And there was lots of, oh, it's obvious. It's common sense. We can all see it. And like, with all due respect, there wasn't a lot of critical thinking going on in that conversation. And I listened to the entire thing. Then I turned to the weeds, which is like a deep, exactly what it says, into the weeds policy conversation. And the conversation they had about critical race theory was like, could not be more different. It was etymological. It was you know, very intellectual, very academic. And like, it should be. And I thought one of my favorite things the guy said is like, just because you've lived in America doesn't mean you're an expert on race theory. Like this is like a complex academic exercise. And I think, look, the risk of the 1619 Project is that it took something that is deeply academic, that involves a certain level of expertise and said, oh, let's make it, you know, palatable for the masses. And there is risk involved. Not saying it's not worth it, because I think it is. But when you take in a conversation that is deeply academic and that requires some expertise and invite America along for the ride, you're going to get some pushback because not everybody's up for that. Just because you live in America doesn't make you an expert on race theory. And like, I think that's what we're seeing right now is this is a this is a a tool of critical thinking, really, really deep philosophical conversations about individualism and systems of power. And that's a big lift in some parts of not only our media environment, but our communities. And I think that's both part of the path forward here and part of the problem. It's part of the path forward in recognizing that we aren't all equipped to get to the bottom of what critical race theory is about. And there is an element of needing to trust people in education to know when and how Mm -hmm. to bring those things to our kids. Part of the problem is that same strain of this belongs within a certain population makes people feel excluded and makes people feel attacked 
we take that sense of... Which isn't of, exactly trust building. Which is not exactly trust building. We take that sense of, hey, not it's a big lift to talk about why we're here and how we relate to each other. Uh, and we make it mean you're too stupid to do that work with us. Mm-hmm. And that means you're not valuable. And that means we're going to continue to push you down and take whatever we can get from you to make our lives better. And people feeling that aren't wrong either. You know, we're just living in a really complicated time. And that's a frustrating conclusion. You know, I know we have some listeners who watched a beloved, experienced school board member lose a seat over critical race theory. Mm. And hearing we're living in a complex time is no consolation. It's hard for me to know how to leave anybody with an action item here, because I just don't think we're at that part of the story yet. For my part, I want to continue to learn as much as I can about race because I did not learn about it in school. I did not learn about the Tulsa massacre until I was in my 30s. That's a travesty. And I'm not mad at any of my teachers for it because they're people operating in a context too. And that's where I think there is a measure of grace in taking the systemic perspective. Because if I didn't take the perspective that some racism is built into just about everything, then I would have to be mad at every history teacher I ever had for not talking to me about this, right? So a measure of grace helps me see why I didn't learn these things. And it also makes me committed to learning them now and to making sure that my children learn them. That's part of it for me. And another part of it for me is talking about the importance of speech and debate in education. And I know that there are conservatives who are very much here for that conversation because they've been upset about speakers being disinvited from campuses for a long time. So let's have that discussion. I think we just got to keep talking to each other about this stuff because it is not going away. This is a branding exercise that has worked. Clearly, it's sticking. And so how do we move through that? I think for me, as much as I'm a person who deeply values history, I think it is important to have a conversation like Rabbi Sachs describes in his book about who are we. And I think as an American, you know, we have a strong foundation of freedom of speech. And I think exactly emphasizing the need for information and debate is important. And I do wonder if part of that needs to be that who we are as Americans needs to be more trustful of expertise. Look, this is not the first time in American history, even in recent American history since I've been alive, that we've decided that we are distrustful of expertise. And I don't know where that comes from, but I'd like us to start chipping away at it because we all have expertise in our lives. If you don't like the sound of elite academics talking about the story of America, cool. But I bet whatever you do in your life, you have people walking in with a one quick Google search acting like they're an expertise in your job and you don't like it either. We all have expertise and we all have experience when people roll in fresh off a Google search acting like they know what we do every day in and out. And it's frustrating. And that's okay. The strength of the diversity of our country is not just in the diversity of our ethnicities, but the diversity of our expertise. And like sometimes letting the expertise lead the way. And that includes in really hard conversations about race. I think some of the biggest mistakes we make is not just listening to, you know, academics, but not listening to people with the lived experience. The polling that drives me crazy is white people telling it, black people, what it's like to be black in America. And I think one of the like frustrating threads of this conversation about critical race theory is this idea it should be left to families. Oh, yeah, I think that's worked really well. White families teaching their white children what it's like to be black in America. No, we don't need that should stop. We should not do that. Some people are experts in information. Some people are experts in their own damn experiences. And we should listen to them. In these conversations about critical race theory, we can lean on the strong American narratives about freedom of speech. And we can create new American narratives about asking hard questions and depending on expertise and trusting each other to be experts in our own experience. And I think that's something that we can really lean on in these conversations. And look, along with developing a sense of where expertise belongs and where it should be questioned, because there are certainly times when it should be questioned as well, I think developing our emotional intelligence cannot be understated. Sarah Mm -hmm. and I have been talking about um, artificial intelligence quite a lot lately, and I keep thinking, I don't know if we have the emotional intelligence socially to engage with these questions. These are big, hard questions. 
and require a ton of groundedness and resilience. And I think developing that alongside these conversations is some of the most important work that we can do. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code Pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. I wanted to talk with you, Sarah, about, I wanted to kind of revisit our conversation from our last Outside of Politics segment. We were celebrating the uh, 1991 folks who are turning 30 this year and talking about how great it is to be entering our 40s because age really helps you settle in and feel more comfortable in your own life. And right after we had that discussion, I was finishing reading um, Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix with Jane, my 10-year-old. And I know that everybody has feelings about the writer of the Harry Potter series. (laughs) So I will just acknowledge that and offer my view that I am deeply disappointed in much of what she has said publicly about transgender individuals. And also that I think art is transcendent and that these books are valuable and they prompt really valuable discussions in my life. And so with that uh, asterisks, I really love Dumbledore's reflection at the end of The Order of the Phoenix about the arrogance of age and how he has with Harry 
made a lot of old man's mistakes because he has withheld information from Harry that he should have shared. And he was imposing on Harry his own ideas about what he could handle and what he couldn't handle and when and how it would feel to learn certain things. And I just thought it was a really good counterpoint to the conversation we were having. Not that there's a tension between these two ideas, but that in addition to feeling really comfortable and grounded as I get older, I also need to kind of actively resist the arrogance that can accompany getting older. And I noticed you doing that in a recent conversation. We had several of them, actually, where people will say something kind of disparaging about the way that kids get news or kids interact online or the use of TikTok. And you're really good at saying, like, hold on, there's a whole lot of value here. And I think that's just that kind of resistance of the arrogance of old age is an important practice. Yeah, I'm not trying to bust on TikTok. First of all, I'm not trying to come under the fire. I don't want to be looped into cringe cringe culture along with Lin-Manuel Miranda on TikTok. But I think that, look, it's hard. It's hard not to lean into the arrogance of age when you have a 12-year-old who acts like you never know what you're talking about, right? Like, I think that that's part of it is this sense, especially when you're parenting, of like, this week on my kids, I just went off and I was like, why am I even here? If you think I'm wrong about everything, maybe you can just raise yourselves because clearly everything I ask you to do, everything I suggest is wrong. And so it's hard not to like feel like you're always in defense of your own knowledge, not to like lean all the way in and think you're always right because you have experiences. And it's just, you know, it's a constant reminder that the world that I experienced is gone, right? And it's a new world. And applying the conclusions I've made or the categories that I've formed, they're just no longer relevant in so many ways. And you know, I can hopefully draw lessons that are still applicable, but it's so hard not to lean into those so- same categories and not to think that because, you know, I had a bad experience on Facebook or I think that Facebook is problematic, that every social media platform is problematic in the same ways, right? It's like we build those critical th- skills and that's the only critical lesson we can apply. And I think that's just, it's just really hard. I just don't want to be, I don't want to harden with age. I don't want to be a person who can't see the ways that the world is changing right in front of my eyes. But I think that, you know, I was thinking this week about getting older and how there's also just hopefully the, the humility that comes from realizing that the list of regrets gets longer. The list of things you look back on and you think, I would have done that different, or I wish I'd done that different, or there's not going to be a do-over. Like that mistake was made and it's just, it's hard and it's hard not to let that make you brittle instead of pliable. And I think the other opportunity, if you can do it for yourself, you can do it for your kids is to look back on some of those hardest moments of being younger and think, wow, that was hard. That was a lot for you. Of course you didn't know how to handle that. Mm -hmm. Of course you felt this way. Of course you were afraid of that. And I find that the more that I'm able to see my own childhood and youth through that lens, the more grace I have with my daughters. And that's something I want to practice all the time. And I just want to make sure that I'm learning as much from them as they are from me. And not only learning from them about myself, which is, I think, a huge part of parenting, right? You learn so much about yourself from your kids, but also that I'm learning about the world from them. They say some interesting things. They ask some interesting questions. They have some beautiful insights. Ellen the other day said, the trees just keep whispering and I want to know what they're talking about. And I posted on Twitter, that's my favorite take on cicadas now. (laughs) Um, But I love that perspective and I want to be awake to it. And I want that to not just apply to my children, but to all of the people who are younger than I am, including people who get their news differently, who are falling into generational stereotypes just like I do, the people who are rolling their eyes that, um, of course, an elder millennial is bringing up Harry Potter. Like, all of that is okay, and all of it belongs together. And I think the more that I can see that, see the value of every point along the spectrum of age, the kinder I'm going to be kind of in the deepest layers of myself and the more open I'm going to be. And I think that circles back to that sense of how do we handle something like critical race theory that's so challenging that can create a lot of anguish. 
that is hard to think about and that makes you question yourself. I think it's keeping that softness of experience. Yeah. I mean, I just have to always watch myself because I want to do it right. I want to do it right. I showed Griffin an Instagram reel about teenagers and parenting teenagers. And he said, just because you show me all the psychological stuff doesn't mean I'm going to feel any different. (laughs) And I thought, yeah, you're right. Like I want to, I want to hack it. Right. I want to be able to like bring all the clarity and lessons that all these experts available to me can provide and what, like eliminate the struggle. It doesn't work like that. I really wish it did. But it doesn't. The struggle is inherent in, you know, parenting and aging and the whole thing. And it's just it's it's hard to both see your way through that while shepherding someone else as well without leaning on age as a sort of expertise instead of just an added layer of perspective. I think it's just instead of saying this is how I experience it and this is how I see things, it's hard not to just go, well, this is how things are. And I have to catch myself all the time, but, you know, having three young kids who will, will call you out on it constantly is pretty, is pretty helpful. My risk is always thinking if I can show everybody that I care and I'm trying, that should do it. Mm. And a lot of what I'm learning from a younger generation is like, sometimes they don't care if I care, they just want things done. Mm. And the sort of intention or desire of my heart is irrelevant compared to their lived reality every day. And that's an important lesson too. So lots to think about as we are uh, advancing in years, (laughs) all of us every day. Um, And we hope that this discussion prompted some things for you to think about as well that are valuable to your life. Thank you for sitting and talking with us about the hard stuff. We'll be back with you here again on Friday and in lots of other places between now and then you can check the show notes to find those. Have the best week available to you. Pantsuit Politics is produced by Studio D Podcast Production. Elise Knapp is our managing director. Megan Hart is our community engagement manager. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. Our show is listener supported. Special thanks to our executive producers. Martha Brunitsky. Linda Daniel. Allie Edwards. Janice Elliott. Sarah Greenup. Julie Haller. Helen Handley. Tiffany Hassler. Barry Kaufman. Molly Kors. The Creeps! Lori Lodow, Lily McClure, David McWilliams, Jared Minson, Emily Neasley, Danny Osmond, The Cousins, Tawny Peterson, Tracy Putoff, Sarah Ralph, Jeremy Sequoia, Karen True, Amy Whited, Joshua Allen, Morgan McHugh, Nicole Berkless, Paula Bremer, and Tim Miller. To support Pantsuit Politics and receive lots of bonus features, visit patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics. You can also connect with us on our website, pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. Sign up for our weekly newsletter and follow us on Instagram at Pantsuit Politics.